In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly King, Paraclete, Spirit of Truth, You who are everywhere present and fill all things, Treasury of all that is good, Master of life, come dwell within us, cleanse us from all stain, and save our souls, O good one. Mary, cause of our joy, pray for us. Hello, I'm Father Francis Martin, and uh, I'm inviting you to join me as we go through St. John's Gospel. My hope is to go from one end to the other, which will take some time, so that we can enter into the beauty and the power of the Word of God as it has been entrusted to St. John. Uh, so I'm going to start now. We've already done uh, the first chapter. So we're starting with chapter 2. Now we're going to do verses 1 to 12, which is the Cana incident. And we'll divide that into two sections. So the first one is what we're going to do now. Before I start, and there will be times in the beginning of this when we're going to stop and look at a, a notion or an idea that will help us through the whole gospel. Today, what I want to talk about is the notion of mystery. Like, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Now, see, the mystery is the hidden interior dimension of an event in salvation history. That is, its relation to the whole plan of the Incarnation and the relation to the Word Incarnate. Let me give you an example of an interior dimension from just life. Give you an example. Suppose you and I are at a party. And I say to you, did you see that? Smith came in, walked across the room, and shook hands with Jones. And Jones took his hand, uh, Smith's hand, and both of his own, and, and shook his hand, and they smiled at each other. And you say, all right. Then I tell you, Smith and Jones have been enemies for 12 years. Now, what did I do? I revealed to you an interior, momentous actually, dimension of what on the surface appears to be a very ordinary event. That is, just ordinary human events have a deep interior dimension. Now, when that event is part of salvation history, when it's God acting through prophets and patriarchs, or when it's Jesus Christ himself the Word incarnate, in this latter case, of course, this reality has an infinite depth. Uh, and it is the role of the Scriptures to uh, open up for us that depth. That's why it requires a very particular kind of reading, attentive and prayerful and slow. If we read this like we read the newspaper, we're going to miss an awful lot. We'll be well informed, but the Mysterion won't touch us. So the Mysterion we're going to search for now, the inner deep meaning, is in the event at Cana, which is chapter 2, as I mentioned, verses 1 to 12. And we'll do it in two sections, now and then later in the week. One of the basic things as well we have to understand in this <coughs> is the notion of type. See, the Old Testament 
is God's providential word preparing Israel and all of us for the greatness and uh, wonder of the Incarnation. That study of that is called typology. And if you look in the Catholic Catechism, starting at number 128, you'll see this whole discussion of the unity of the two Testaments. Huh? St. Augustine, with his usual flair for language, has it. You see, novus in vetera latet. Vetus in novo um, patet. Huh? So you've got this, that the, the Old Testament, the New Testament, it lies hidden in the Old. And the Old Testament becomes obvious, apparent in the New. Let me give you a little example. When David is weeping over Absalom, Absalom has rebelled against him, gotten an army, and is marching on Jerusalem to take Jerusalem and probably kill his father. And David escapes by going over the hills with his army, Joab. And he said, now there's going to be a fight. It's going to be a war here. But I'm telling you all now, don't touch my son, uh, Absalom. Don't touch him. He's my son. Well, as you probably remember the story, when Joab finally found Absalom in a defenseless position, hanging by his long hair from a tree, he threw, you know, he stabbed him with, with javelins until he died. The news then was brought back by the messenger, your army has won. David said, what about my son? Would all David's enemies be like your son? Semitic way of saying, he's dead. David went away weeping. Absalom, Absalom, Beni, Mi Absalom, Absalom, my son, who would grant to me that I could die instead of you? This is a father weeping over his son, but the son is rebellious and evil. And yet, this is David forgiving him, weeping over him. That's Jesus. Do you see that? That's Jesus weeping over us, hoping we'll get it one day, understanding how much he loves us, how much he has our lives in his heart. In the meanwhile, he weeps over us because we're such jerks. That's the mysterion there. You see what I mean? There's a deep inner dimension to that. David was an anticipated realization of the mystery of Christ. In his own way, he did on another level what the Lord Christ has done for the whole human race. Weep over us and want to forgive us. Now, that's a mystery. And that's how the Old and New Testament are connected. Um, I'll give you one example before we move on. <laughs> in the first letter to the Corinthians, in chapter 10, Paul is uh, saying, Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, our ancestors, that is the Jewish people, this is Corinth. There's maybe one Jew in a hundred or two hundred, maybe none in that Corinthian community. And yet he says, Our ancestors. You see? We're all under the cloud and all pass through the sea. All were baptized into Moses. That is, they, they were joined to him through passing through the sea and in the cloud. And all ate the same spiritual food and so forth. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. And they were struck down in the wilderness. Now he says, 
These things happened as examples for us. You see? So that we might not desire evil as they did. And he goes on. And then, this is a striking line. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did as they were destroyed by the serpents. Who was present there? The Logos. Not incarnate yet. But he's present to his people. And so you see, what binds the Old and New Testament together is Jesus Christ, the incarnate word. That's why he says, we must not put Christ to the test. That's so strong that there are variants in the manuscript, we must not put God to the test. But no, you figure out. If the text said Christ, you can understand how they'd be shocked and say God. But if the text said God, who would put in Christ? Paul. And so, Christ is there with his people. <coughs> not incarnate yet, but there. Um, now, a lot of this typology, as I'm calling it, um, is by allusion. This is one more theme I want to touch on, and then we'll be ready to... But you'll see it, the whole of the New Testament, in fact, the whole of the Old Testament, links together by allusion. I'm going to give you an example of allusion. It might be easier than a big, long literary definition. Suppose we're at a pro-life rally, and I'm asked to give a speech. So I get up, and I say, fellow citizens, over 200 years ago, our forefathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are again in a struggle to decide whether that nation or any other nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. What am I doing? I'm saying, this. That's, everyone will recognize the Gettysburg Address, I presume. Why am I wording my speech in terms of Lincoln? Because we are again in a situation of civil strife over human rights. And so I haven't said that, but everybody knows what I've just done, right? Friends, this is bordering on a civil war. Thank God is not with arms, but it is a war over human rights. Uh, do you think that illusion is clear? Do you see what illusions are? How they create something without saying it, okay? Uh, all right. So now um, we're going to begin to look at the, uh, the text um, in the uh, Gospel of John, okay? Um, this is the last event in a series of revelations which we have already considered, right? All throughout that first chapter up to verse 51, we have on the next day, on the next day, on the next day, we have like four next days. And then this text starts on the third day. Now, if you're sensitive to illusions, you're saying, Allusion to what? You see, what is he alluding to when uh, he wants to call this day the third day? Well, we're going to work on that in a moment. But I'll tell you now what we're going to do. This is an allusion to the liturgical observance of Pentecost. At the time of uh, Jesus and John, you see, 
already the uh, the people had a liturgical observance of Shavuot, a Pentecost, and it pres- it consisted of seven days of liturgical observance to celebrate the feast of the giving of the law, the precious gift of the law. And so, uh, for those who know that and know the tradition, and I'm going to read a little bit of the tradition for you, on the third day, you see, on the third day, on the third day, God keeps saying, get ready, on the third day I'm coming to give you the law, on the third day. So that's just how all of a sudden, on the third day, what happens in the, the evidence we have for this is in uh, a book called The Tractates, Makilta. Uh, and while it post-dates, it's after the Gospels, it embodies these kind of traditions, you see. And so what we have is this uh, allusion to the preparation for Pentecost. Are there other possible allusions? Yes, and other commentators point them out. But I'm going to present this one because I think it's the most enlightening and the most helpful. And it is just based on the two things we've just talked about, the type and the allusion. Nowhere in there does John say, Cana is a new Pentecost. He doesn't say that. But he does allude to it. And at the end he says, Jesus revealed his glory, which is at the end of the Exodus story of the giving of the law. So what's going on there? As Augustine already said beautifully, What's going on there is that Jesus is announcing the new law. All right, we'll stop now and be ready for the next session.